Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. Which puts us into a new time period. If you remember, we've broken in this podcast the Old Testament into nine time periods. We did the creation and the beginnings. We did Abraham, the covenant and the family. And then we saw the covenant in Egypt in bondage when we have a king ruling over us and afflicting us. Then number four, we go into the desert. And we receive the law, but we're afflicted in the desert. And there's manna, and the Lord guides us in the desert. Number five, we come out of the desert and settle the promised land. And we divide up by tribes. Number six, we have a unified kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon. And then number seven, we have a divided kingdom. So those are the first seven time periods. Number eight is we're going to watch the kingdom of Judah go into captivity, into Babylon. Now, we're not going to cover that history this week. We kind of skip that history until we get to the writings of Daniel. He's the only one that really writes in captivity. Now, we've got the prophecies of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but we'll mainly look at Daniel as the time period of the captivity. And then Cyrus the Great and the Persians conquer Babylonia, and he has a dream in which he sends the Lord asks him to send the Jews back to Jerusalem. So the last time period of the Old Testament is sending the Jews and anyone who wants to go from Babylon back to Jerusalem under the king's authorization. A couple main characters we need to talk about that aren't necessarily highlighted strongly in the text, but become very symbolic. So when Cyrus sends them back, he appoints kind of a political leader and a religious leader. And to the best of their ability, they try to follow the royal line of David. And so this man named Zerubbabel is the political leader. And so he kind of represents the king and the political family. And Joshua is kind of the religious leader. And so he kind of represents the priests. And so those two are going to come up throughout the text. They're going to come up throughout Ezra. And then the prophets that we're going to talk about that really come into play here are Haggai and Zechariah. So those four with Ezra and Nehemiah, there's kind of six names you need to know. Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel and Joshua, Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai and Zechariah are the prophets. Zerubbabel and Joshua are kind of the political and religious figureheads that lead the return and oversee that whole group. And then we've got the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah. And big picture, Ezra is going to talk about the rebuilding of the temple. Nehemiah is going to get into the weeds on the walls of Jerusalem being rebuilt and gets into some of the gates. And so between the two books, were rebuilding Jerusalem. Now just know that they weren't originally two books. Ezra and Nehemiah was kind of one thing, and it wasn't until the Christians got a hold of it where they changed it. Origen was this early Christian thinker that said, hey, these are two books. And then when Jerome goes to Bethlehem and he takes the Hebrew Bible and he translates the Hebrew into Latin, 
And this Bible is going to be called the Vulgate. He translates the Greek of the New Testament into Latin. And the Latin Vulgate kind of becomes like the standard, and he splits them into two. The Jews don't split Ezra and Nehemiah into two books until centuries later. But just know that originally they were one. I think it's really wise that in Come Follow Me, we teach them both at the same time, because we're talking about the same stuff. Once again, Ezra is focused on the temple. Nehemiah is focused on the walls. But I think the main thing of Ezra and Nehemiah is, what does building the temple and building the walls look like in my life? Now, it's at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah that the rise of the law and keeping of the law becomes preeminent, at least in the canonized texts that we have. But there's another vein of scripture that don't make it into the canon, and that's apocalyptic literature. To give you some dates, just so we can kind of see where we are with Ezra, and the importance of apocalyptic versus keeping of the law, the temple's destroyed in 586 BC. By then, Nephi and Lehi are gone. Then there's this leader that comes about. His name is Cyrus, and he reigns from 559 to 530. And one of the things Cyrus does is he takes over Babylon. And the Babylonian Empire is taken by Cyrus, who was a Persian leader. And Cyrus has this view that the people that he conquers should be allowed to go home. They should be allowed to go home to their lands. They can keep their culture, their language. And so he tells the Jews that they're allowed to go back and rebuild their temple. And so many of them start to go. And it doesn't all happen at once. There's probably waves or stages of... Kind of like Pioneer Treks getting to Salt Lake. It's that same idea as not everyone came in one wave. Yeah. Each one has their own individual story. Yeah. So in 539, Cyrus conquers Babylon, and then he says they can go back. The Jews can go back, and that's in 537. So they're freed from Babylon. They start trickling back. And then we think right around 515 BC is the, the beginnings of the second temple. The second Jerusalem temple is dedicated in 515 BC or thereabouts. And that second temple will be there from 515 BC to about 70 AD. And that's called Second Temple Judaism. And so this is the time period of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah are main players in this time period of rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the walls. That just kind of gives you a background on the time. But I also want to say that there are breadcrumbs in Ezra and Nehemiah to indicate that we're really going to push forward on the focusing of keeping of the rules and the rituals of religion. And this idea of apocalypticism, this idea of visions and visionary prophets, it seems to trickle out after this time period. Now, here's why it's complicated with Come, Follow Me. We're not covering everything sequentially in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament itself jumps all around. So we're going to read so many of the prophets that were actually before the exile. And then to make things more complicated, you pick up the Psalms, which we're going to be doing in a couple weeks. And some of the Psalms are written in the exile. The author tells you, hey, I'm writing this in the exile. Some of them are written during the time of David. And that's a big spread. I mean, David is like almost 500 years before the exile. And so it's kind of confusing. So we'll try to explain it. We're doing the history, and then we'll do the prophetic books of the prophets that are going back and jumping around that time period. Yeah. And so a lot of the things that are coming out in the time period of the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are what we call apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature can be summed up with some of these ideas. It focuses on the struggle between good and evil. It focuses on the coming of a messianic age with a messianic king. 
the resurrection is a really important idea in apocalyptic literature. Visions, the idea that the good guys are going to win, that the righteous are going to be resurrected. And in the Book of Mormon, we have those messages. And Christianity is that message. If you really get into the weeds on the New Testament, that message is coming out. And so as the church is coming out of captivity, we have all this evidence in church history of revelation and prophets and keys and lots of text and lots of visions. The Book of Mormon is paying homage to these ideas because Lehi is an apocalyptic prophet, and Lehi's in this time period. That's right. So we're going to talk about a group of Jews who, after a crushing Babylonian captivity where Israel is completely defeated, are going to come out of that captivity and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, that's the story of the Latter-day Saints, because our entry into the world is after an apostasy. The whole world falls into apostasy. And Israel is defeated and goes into hiding. And now we, by the king's decree, have been sent to earth to rebuild Zion after that period. So do you see how this time period is exactly like our day? Unfortunately, the scriptural support and the historical support, just we don't get a lot. And yet, it is one of the most symbolic in the Old Testament regarding what we're doing here in the latter days. So as you read Ezra and Nehemiah this week, look for a lot of these little breadcrumbs that say, here's how the Latter-day Saints are going to succeed in building Zion when the world pushes against us, just like they pushed against Ezra and Nehemiah and Joshua and Zerubbabel just like they are coming out of the Babylonian captivity and they're trying to rebuild Jerusalem, and the Latter-day Saints are coming out of the apostasy and we're trying to rebuild Zion, there is going to be considerable pushback. That they had enemies who don't want them to succeed and rebuild the temple, don't want the wall built, they don't want the Jews to come back into the picture, and so do we. We have enemies that don't want Zion built. They don't want the restoration to occur. So we're going to take a look at all of the efforts that the enemies put forth to discourage this work from succeeding. And then we're going to contrast that with the attitudes and what they say that they're going to do in response to the pushback, and then we're going to see them succeed. That's the general message is, watch how badly the enemies don't want this to happen and what they do to stop it. So the first four chapters of Ezra are kind of historical. Chapter one, we get the story of Cyrus and how he feels like he's been commissioned by God to send the Jews back, and then they start to come. And then there's a big long list of who's coming. And there's an interesting side note that you need to have kept and preserved your history, because if you can't show that you're tied into the priestly line or the Levitical line or even the history line, then you you have lost your place in the restoration. And you'll remember that the Lord referred to the book of Ezra in the Doctrine and Covenants as if to say, hold on to your history, hold on to your lineage so that you can claim your spot. So then we get to Ezra chapter 4, which is where the pushback begins. Notice in verse 1, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, 
they're going to start to push back. Now, do you see the similarity? When our enemies see that the Lord has put his hand to earth again to restore the truth after the enemy successfully got it swept off the earth, the enemies of truth are going to be upset and they're going to push back. So let me just give you a list of things that they do to try and stop the progress of the building of the temple, the building of the wall. And you realize, as you look around our day, you'll see, yes, the enemy is doing that same thing. Starting in verse 4, then the people of the land weakened. That is attempt number one, is our enemy is trying to say, how can I weaken the Latter-day Saints? How can I weaken the youth? And notice that there's a footnote on that word that says discourage. So number two, they try and discourage. Have you ever felt discouraged in the cause of Zion? Have missionaries ever felt discouraged and maybe thought to pull back their hand or their effort? And that's the enemy succeeding. And then there's another one in verse four, They weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. Tell me the Latter-day Saints have not been troubled in building Zion. The world and our enemies are trying to weaken, discourage, and trouble. In verse 5, they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. And think about church history. Satan's attempt to frustrate the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, and even today, how much effort is being put in by our enemies to frustrate our purposes? And then in verse 6, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote unto him an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah. Here comes the many false reports, the lies. If we were to gather all the newspaper and social media reports about, quote, what the Mormons are doing or what the Mormons are, how big a pile would that be? All of the attempts to spread false rumors against Zion, and that's what Joseph had to deal with all his life. This is what we face on a day-to-day basis. I think that's why Joseph wanted to write his own history, because he said, if I don't get my voice out there, other people are going to speak for me. As Latter-day Saints, the invitation is we need to let our voices be heard, but do it in a way where we're not hurtful. There's got to be a way that we do it with respect, right? And that's a great question, is how do we respond to this onslaught of false reports? So we're now into the next king, Ahasuerus. Whenever I teach seminary students and they're like, how do I pronounce that? I say, just say surprise dinosaur. (laughs) I don't know. Is that cheesy? (laughs) No, no, no. It works. And so they write a letter to the king Verses 11 through 16 are the letter they send to the king, and they make all these accusations. They say in verse 12 that they're building the rebellious and the bad city. Think about how that relates to everything that's been said about Zion and the Latter-day Saints, that they're building the rebellious and the bad city. And then they say to the king in verse 13, "'Be it known now unto the king that if this city is builded,' and the walls are set up again. They will not pay toll, tribute, and custom, 
and so you shall endanger the revenue of the king. Verse 15, hey, you go search the records. You go figure out what kind of people these have been, and then you'll know not to build this city. And so in verse 16, if this city be builded again, and the walls thereof set up, by this means thou shalt have no portion on this side of the river. Do you see the false rumors? Satan and the enemies are doing the same thing today. If Zion is built, then all these horrible things are going to happen. And yet, in the rumor, there's a kernel of truth. Because essentially, with the temple comes the idea of kingship. The Jews wanted the cosmic king to come. And so when they have a temple, part of the ceremony of the fall festival was they would invoke that idea that God's king would come and reign. And that's essentially why the second temple gets destroyed. Now we're fast forwarding to 70 AD. I mean, this is history after Jesus. Remember, Jesus, before he dies, says many false Christs will rise up. Well, one of them does. His name's Menahem, and he rises up, and they kick out Rome, and they establish what they think is their new Zion, and all manner of horrible things happen when Rome hears about this, that the Jews have kicked out the Roman government off the Temple Mount and out of Jerusalem. The Jews mint their own coins that have their stamp upon them, and Rome sends Titus to put down the rebellion. And so Jesus's words came to fruition. Those were false Christs. And so with the temple comes messianic expectation of this cosmic king. And so there is a kernel of truth in what the enemies are saying. Just like today. Yeah, it's so complicated because we have to be able to articulate our message and navigate these voices. It's a difficult thing. And Bryce, in today's world where everybody has a microphone and everybody can talk on social media... It's hard to find and discern what is reality, what is truth. These voices that are divergent in Ezra, we see this today. This is our day. This is the most applicable time period in the Old Testament that relates to our day. And so they write a letter to the king. So then when the king responds and says, look, I searched, and yeah, the history of Israel doesn't bode well for me to let them build this temple and the wall. Therefore, we need to stop them. And so verse 23, now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum and the scribe and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem unto the Jews and made them cease by force and power. Then cease the work of the house of God. Now, I think we need to acknowledge that there are going to be moments where the enemy succeeds in stopping us temporarily. There are going to be those moments where it looks like Zion has stopped. One of those was the death of Joseph Smith. So many people thought that the cause of Zion was over when Joseph Smith died. Most of them were enemies, but there were even members of the church who kind of thought that same thing. Do you remember when Peter went back fishing after the Savior's death, kind of thinking, well, I guess it's all over now? There's going to be moments in the history of the Restoration where it looks like the enemy has succeeded. And John, in his revelation— kind of picks up that theme. And there's a chapter, chapter 11, where two prophets, two apostles are sent to Jerusalem to preach to the Jews, and they are killed. They are conquered. And there's a moment where evil rejoices, and they're dancing in the streets that the two bad guys are gone. 
And then all of a sudden, the two witnesses stand back up. God will not be stopped. This work will continue. Joseph Smith in 1842 says, The standard of truth has been erected. No unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. Persecutions may rage, mobs may combine, armies may assemble, calumny may defame, but the truth of God will go forth boldly, nobly, and independent, till it has penetrated every continent, visited every clime, swept every country, and sounded in every ear, till the purposes of God shall be accomplished, and the great Jehovah shall say, the work is done. So they temporarily stopped the building of the temple, but it's not going to stay stopped. It will continue. So now let's pause right there in Ezra, and we'll jump to Nehemiah, because he's going to talk about the same efforts to stop him from building the wall. Remember, Ezra's going to talk about the building of the temple, and Nehemiah is going to talk about the building of the wall, but both of them talk about the enemy trying to stop and discourage. So jump to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 19. And we'll get into a little bit of the history of who are these enemies. But when Sanballat heard that they were going to build a wall, they laughed us to scorn and despised us. Now, those are two that we need to add to the list because one of the most effective tools that Satan is using today is mockery. They laugh us to scorn. They mock Do you remember how Korahor in the Book of Mormon uses mockery to try and discourage them, just like many are doing today? That you Mormons believe in crazy, bizarre things, and so they mock, they laugh us to scorn. Isn't it interesting that if you were to put on a Broadway musical mocking some other religion, I think the world would be up in arms. But if you put on a Broadway musical mocking Mormonism, no one seems to bat an eye. In fact, they celebrate it. They despise the building of Zion. Joseph Smith was shocked that the one thing all the denominations had in common in his day is that they all hated him. It's interesting that the many different factions in Jesus' day couldn't agree on anything, but they could agree on one thing, and it was, we got to take Jesus out. Very interesting parallel there. So jump to chapter four. We're going to find that same theme. When Sanballat heard that he builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. So what we're doing is going to make some people angry. And Joseph Smith stands as a testament of the anger that building Zion can sometimes bring. His tarring, his feathering, all of the anger thrust towards him. And we see that anger today. Building Zion is going to make people angry. Also, in verse 8, they are going to conspire against. And conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem. And then there's one more in verse 8 to hinder. They will fight against and hinder. Now jump to chapter 6. Verse 1 of chapter 6, now it came to pass when Sanballat and his cohorts and the rest of our enemies heard that I builded the wall and that there was no breach left therein, that Sanballat and all of his group 
came unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. It sure is funny that the enemy invites you into a place called Ono. And it really is Ono. The Hebrew is pronounced just like that. But I mean, obviously, they say Ono and we say Ono, and it doesn't mean the same. But it's funny, right? Can you picture how many times today's enemies are pulling teenagers into places that could be called Ono? Hey, meet me in the place called Ono. But the reality is, the end of verse 2, they thought to do me mischief. And that's what the world does. They act all friendly. Hey, meet us in the place called Oh No, because we intend to do you mischief. Now, we want to just talk a little bit about the history of the enemy. So now that you've seen what they do, let's talk about who they were that were trying to stop this work. Yeah. Who are these people? If you look in Ezra 4.4, it says, the people of the land weaken the hands of the people of Judah. So the foes would probably be these groups of people called the Samaritans. If you look in the chapter heading, it actually says Samaritans, but the text of Ezra 4 isn't going to say that. They're literally called the people of the land. But Robert Alter gives this as the Samaritans. He says this, Judah and Benjamin, being the two tribes of the southern kingdom of Judah, the designation here is of the returning exiles, represented as the inhabitants of the land. The foes in this text, then, would be the Samaritans, perhaps in part a remnant of the Israelites, but here represented as foreigners who had adopted the local cult, living in the region to the north. Okay, what's he saying? I think what Robert Alter and others are trying to say is that there were really two groups of Jews. Now, I don't know because I wasn't there, but this is the picture I have in my head. When Assyria comes and they take the Israelites, as we've discussed in the previous podcast back from the Second Kings narrative, not all of the Israelites from the north are taken. Now, if you remember from the king's narrative, the Israelites in the north are always depicted as bad. Remember, they had 20 monarchs that are always doing bad. They're doing the sin of Jeroboam. Well, what was the sin of Jeroboam? They had an alternate temple structure. And so from the perspective of the south, those Israelites up in the north are doing religion wrong. And so they look at them as apostates, and that rift never goes away. They're not friends. Even in the New Testament, it doesn't it go ju- It just, this is a continuation of these same things. So back to the story, that the Assyrians take the Israelites in 721, but I don't think they take them all. And then we know that they do some mixing. So there were some people that lived in the north that also probably intermarried with people of other religious beliefs. And then we get to, you know, what do these two groups believe? If you look in verse 2 of chapter 4, of Ezra. Look what it says. Then they, and now that's going to be the adversaries of Judah, that's going to be the people of the land, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said, let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Ezra Hadon, king of Assyria, which brought us up hither. So there seems to be this belief that they too believe in Jehovah. And frankly, they do. You see, 
In the 5th century BC, the Samaritans built a temple at Mount Gerizim. Now, Mount Gerizim is in today what's called modern-day Nablus, but at the time of the 5th century, it was called Shechem, and it was the center of Israelite worship, and there really was a temple there. And it was built as another shrine to Jehovah. And so are they really offering to help, or is this sarcastic? I don't know. I don't know the tone. It seems to me from Ezra 4 and also other things going on in Nehemiah, it seems to me that one way it can be read is that they're saying, hey, we really want to help so that they could subvert the directives of the Jews. That's probably the way the author of Ezra and Nehemiah is taking it. But what if they really are offering help? And if that's the case... The Jews put them down and say, you know what, we don't want your help. So look in verse 3. Bryce, read that. The Jews respond and say, ye have nothing to do with us to build an house to our God, but we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel. I mean, there it is. There's tension here. Now, the tension gets worse. You see, this is a little bit of history that's not necessarily in the Bible, but I think it's good for us to realize this, that the temple in Gerizim and the temple in Jerusalem coexist. So we have Samaritans reading the Samaritan Pentateuch in the 5th century BC all the way up until 112 BC. We have Jews reading their Mosaic Pentateuch all the way up until this time. But then in 112 BC, the high priest from Jerusalem has the temple of the Samaritans destroyed. And there's lots of ways to read this. There's a great article we're putting in in the show notes that we're linking, and it's called The Destruction of the Samaritan Temple by John Hyrcanus, A Reconsideration. Essentially, his argument is this, that the destruction of the Samaritan Temple at Gerizim can be read as an act of hatred on one account, but it can also be read as, quote, an act of integration of the Samaritans into the Hasmonean state. Okay, what is he saying? That the Jews in the south, led by the high priest in 112 BC, go up north and they destroy the temple at Mount Gerizim in an effort to get the Samaritans to join with them to have the same religious belief. Now just think about that for a minute and imagine if you're doing this in the realm of parenting. Imagine I want my son to get on board with something I want him to do, and so the way that I do it is I destroy all the things that he loves. Is that going to convert him to my way of thinking, or is that going to alienate my relationship with my son? And so that's the argument in this paper, is that when the Jews have their temple destroyed up in the north, the Samaritan temple, it's the effort to kind of bring them along, but it does the opposite. It creates this horrible rift between the people in the north and the people in the south, and in Jesus' day, it's still there. I mean, it's the point where when Jesus goes up north, they do not like the Jews. And that's the backdrop to the story of the woman at the well, when she says, what are you even talking to me for? You're a Jew. And so to me, Ezra and Nehemiah is relevant today on so many levels, whether it's somebody you look at as an other because they have a different political affiliation, or maybe they have a different religious belief, or maybe their language is different, or their skin doesn't exactly have the same pigmentation as yours, or whatever. And there's so many different ways people find differences. And I love how Bryce talked about this with Jacob, where one of the things that the adversary tries to do to get us to not like each other with pride is we see a difference 
and then we assume that we're better or we assume that they think that they're better, right? There's all these assumptions people have and that we create in our minds. But the rift between these two groups of people basically comes down to that. It comes down to nationality and also religious differences. And so I obviously this doesn't happen and I'm just playing what if, but what if... What if in chapter 4, verse 2, when the people of the north say, hey, let us build it, what if the Jews would have said, you know what, let's find common ground. They both believe in the same God. And what if verse 3 never happened? What if they said, you know what, instead of you have nothing to do with us, they say, we have everything in common. Let's work together. And so I see that as Latter-day Saints. How can we be embracing of our brothers and sisters that believe in Jesus? Maybe we don't have the same doctrine, but is there a way that we can work together? What if we could embrace our neighbors and find commonalities? I think that is a really relevant message of Ezra and Nehemiah. Mike, Orson F. Whitney, whom I absolutely love, once said the following, The Lord needs such men on the outside of His church to help it along. They are among its auxiliaries and can do more good for the cause where the Lord has placed them than anywhere else. And the same is true for the priesthood and its auxiliaries inside the church. Hence, some are drawn into the fold and receive a testimony of the truth, while others remain unconverted for the present the beauties and glories of the gospel being veiled temporarily from their view for a wise purpose. The Lord will open their eyes in His own due time. God is using more than one people for the accomplishment of this great and marvelous work. The Latter-day Saints cannot do it all. It is too vast, too arduous for any one people. And I think that's the spirit of what we're trying to say is this group of Jews were so exclusionary. They were like, no, we'll build Zion. We don't need any help from anyone else. But I think there really were some good people who wanted to help, who really wanted to help them build their temple. And it would have been better to ask them to help. Thank you, Mark. I think that's important to understand who they were that were trying to stop this work. Perhaps were they pushing back because the Jews were being a little bit exclusionary. But I do want to go back and make our second list. Our second list is how do we respond when the enemy pushes back on our building Zion? What is our response? Let's start our list with what Nehemiah says to them, because this, I think, really is the apex of these two books. When Sanballat invites him into a place called Oh No, because he wants to do him mischief, the response of Nehemiah is phenomenal. And I would love if every teenager in this church, if every member of the church who faces opposition, if you go to work and some of your colleagues mock or make fun of the church, or they push back and laugh us to scorn, or they try and weaken or discourage, I would love if this phrase came out of every one of our hearts. I sent messengers unto them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? I just love that. I'm doing something good here. I am building something phenomenal. I am part of something wonderful. I'm not walking away. 
in the spirit of Jesus asking Peter, will you also go away? Nehemiah says, where would I go? I am involved in something fantastic. President Nelson is trying to help the Latter-day Saints understand the vision of Zion so that we can feel part of something bigger than ourselves, something incredible, something that's been in the works for thousands of years, and now I get to be part of it. If you feel part of that, if you know that you are part of something incredible, then when they invite you into the valley of oh no, because they really want to do you mischief, you can say in your heart, I am part of something great. I am not going to walk away from it. So back in Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah is a servant of the king and wants to join his people in Israel. And so the king says, what's wrong? And I want to join. And he sends them out there to join them. So as Nehemiah finally says, I want to be part of this cause, there's some beautiful phrases that I would like to add to our list. The first one we find in chapter 2 of his book, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. It begins when you say to yourself, I want to be a part of this. I think the defining moment of the Stripling Warriors is when they assembled themselves together and decided to join the cause. They didn't join because their mom and dad pushed them into it. There is a real difference between a youth who says, I want to be part of this, and one who feels compelled by mom and dad to do it. Young Spencer W. Kimball had a moment like that. Spencer W. Kimball was raised in Arizona, in the same city where I lived for eight years and absolutely loved, go Thatcher. President Kimball was a young man in that city, and at that time, there was considerable pressure to get the Mormons out. There were some people who did not like that the Mormons had moved into that area. So one day, President Kimball is in some place, I don't know exactly, and he overhears a conversation where two men are talking about oh, don't worry about it, the Mormon church won't stand. He said, the unknown voice postulated, the Mormon church has stood its ground for the first two generations, but wait until the third and fourth and succeeding generations come along. The first generation, fired with a new religion, developed a great enthusiasm for it. Surrounded with bitterness and calumny of a hostile world, persecuted from pillar to post, they were forced to huddle together for survival. There was good reason to expect they would live and die faithful to their espoused cause. The second generation came along born to enthusiasts, zealots, devotees. They were born to men and women who had developed great faith, were used to hardships and sacrifices for their faith. They inherited from their parents and soaked up from religious homes the stuff of which the faithful are made. They were full of reservoirs of strength and faith upon which to draw. Then young Spencer Kimball heard them say this, or at least here's his summary of it. But wait till the third and fourth generation come along. The fire will have gone out. The devotion will have been diluted. The sacrifice will have been nullified. The world will have hovered over them and surrounded them and eroded them. The faith will have been expended and the religious fervor leaked out. Now listen to how young Spencer responded to that. 
the way all of us should respond when the world mocks or threatens or pushes back or tries to weaken or discourage. This is his own words. I'm going to quote him. That day I realized that I was a member of the third generation. That day I clenched my growing fists, gritted my teeth, and made a firm commitment to myself that here was one third generation who would not fulfill that dire prediction. In other words, that was the day he said, let us rise up and build. And he strengthened his hands for this good work. That's how it begins. It begins in that moment where all of us and each of us say, I'm in. I am in this cause. Number three on our list in verse 20 of chapter two in Nehemiah. Then answered I them and said unto them, the God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. Once you say, let us rise up and build, you have to say, God's going to be with us. I know that the God of heaven will prosper us. That's important. Everyone has to have faith in the work that we're doing. You have to know that God will indeed prosper us. Number four on our list. Let's jump to chapter four. This is where Sanballat is wroth and he mocks and he tries to push back even more. Nehemiah says in verse six, so built we the wall and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof. Why? The people had a mind to work. We live in a generation where it's almost like the desire to work is fading. The only way we're going to build a Zion is if the people have a mind to work. And by the way, if you look at those walls, you would have to have a mind to work. Those walls are pretty massive, and some of the stones are so large. And, and I just stand in awe and look at those stones and say, how did they even fit these together? I, it, it's a marvel that people were able to do these things. And I really do see similar things when I touch the stones of the Salt Lake Temple and think, they did this without all the technology that we have today. I mean, that is faith literally in action. It is pretty incredible. That's the mentality that we have to have. Here in Salt Lake, missionaries are just kind of treated with royalty. You know, you roll out the red carpet and you have the missionaries come over to your home. And I think sometimes we get the idea that I'm going to go out into the world and I'm going to be received like royalty and they're going to love me. And then all of a sudden they realize that missionary work is aptly called missionary work. You have to put your shoulder to the wheel and push along. If we don't have a mind to work, we're never going to build Zion. So there's number four on our list. Now, number five is in verse nine of chapter four of Nehemiah. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto God and set a watch against them day and night. In other words, what did Elder Holland say recently? You got a trowel in one hand that you're building the temple and you've got a musket in the other hand. We have to pray as if everything depends on God. And we have to kneel down and beg God for help. And then we have to wake up and get to the work. And if the work means pushing back on the enemy, I'm going to do that. 
And so they prayed and then set their watch by day and night. Elder Holland is referencing the construction of the temple back in Kirtland. And so George Q. Cannon, who was a member of the First Presidency, talked about the persecution. And he said, It is very encouraging to think that in the midst of the assaults which are being made upon the church and the threats that are in circulation concerning us and our future fate, there is faith enough found in the midst of the people to pursue without discouragement and without stopping the great work which we feel that our Father in Heaven has laid upon us. We have not been situated as we were back in Nauvoo when we finished our temple there, and I would add Kirtland. For then the workmen who labored upon it were like the Jews in the days of Nehemiah when they undertook to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and they had to labor a portion of the time at least, and a great portion of it too, with their instruments of labor in one hand and weapons to defend themselves in the other. We were surrounded by mobs and living in a constant state, it may be said, of fear because of the threats which were made and the combinations which were formed and the attacks upon our outlying settlements and the burning of our houses and the destruction of our grain and the shooting down of our cattle and in the driving out of the people from their homes. That's in Journal of Discourses, Volume 25, page 167. And what Elder Cannon is referring to, after Joseph Smith is killed in 1844, The temple isn't finished, and the saints stay and finish the temple. And it's at this time when the individuals that live in and around the communities of Nauvoo decide to actually kill people that live in the outlying regions of Nauvoo, and they do mob the saints. And the saints finish the temple, and they get endowed, and they move west. But in the midst of them finishing it, they did have to labor with a weapon in one hand and a trowel in another. And back to Elder Holland's talk that he gave down at BYU to educators, he talked about this story in the context of education to educators. And essentially what he was saying is, we have to be able to defend the doctrines of the kingdom in the midst of a world swirling with secularism. And and I see the wisdom in his statement, and I know people didn't like the analogy that he made with muskets, where he said, you know, they have a musket in one hand and a trowel in the other. And he's not certainly not saying that members of the church need to grab guns, but his point is, in the discourse that we have out in the world, if somebody is out there attacking faith, it doesn't mean we just have to lay down and take it. I love the analogy that Elder Maxwell gave, where he said, We don't want to give away any uncontested slam dunks. You see, whenever anyone attacks faith, it's just words. It's just rhetoric. You can't prove or disprove faith with words. And so all this is is rhetoric. What proves faith for me is the Holy Ghost. But I do appreciate a well-crafted sentence or a well-crafted argument. And essentially, that's part of why Bryce and I are doing this podcast, is we're trying to provide a rational basis for faith using the tools at our disposal. All we have is a microphone and a computer, but with these tools, just like with the temple, the tools that they had, which as primitive as they were, were means by which they could build a temple to worship God. And so everything that we're using are tools to build faith. And I think it's as relevant as it was then, in 522 BC, as it was to the time of the saints in Nauvoo and Kirtland, when they had to do that too, as it is today. We have to build our temple of faith. And like I said, I don't mean it to mean that we are to be offensive with our weapons or our words, but we need to be able to defend our faith using the language of the world so that we can communicate those ideas, but we also need to do it in the spirit that the Savior would invoke, the spirit of peace, 
uh, rationality and compassion. But we do need to communicate it. I, I really feel like this is important. To me, that's the big picture of Ezra and Nehemiah, is there's all this opposition, and they need to move forward. I personally think the pendulum's going a little bit too far. When the people from the north say, hey, we want to help, in my perfect kumbaya scriptures, the Jews would say, yeah, let's work together. I rarely see when people draw lines in the sand and say, nope, you're another, and I'm not even going to talk to you. I rarely see that as a way that religion works well. And frankly, when I read Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus is always trying to break down those barriers. Whenever anybody says, Jesus, what are you doing talking to this person? Jesus is like, settle down. I'm doing my work, and I want to I bring us together. So I think that's a really important message of these two books. And in that setting, I want you to just picture them, trowel in one hand, musket in the other. In that setting, Nehemiah says to them in verse 14, I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, be not afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. The world has picked up that microphone, and some people have used it to shout horrible phrases and horribly demeaning things. And they're very loud, and they can be very scary, especially when they team up. And that's exactly what's trying to discourage our work. And I hear the prophets of old rising up saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the resistance that you're receiving. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible. This is going to work out. He's going to be with us. Don't be afraid. You're doing a mighty work. Don't walk away because the pressure's mounting. Now, that's a beautiful list from Nehemiah. I just want to add one more from Ezra. Ezra has what perhaps is my favorite phrase in all of this, and I just want to scream it out to everyone that is worried about the world pushing us down. So after talking about the rumor and when they came back and stopped them. Notice it was chapter 4, verse 23, where they made them cease by force and the work ceased. Now, chapter 5, verse 1, enter the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And then my absolute favorite phrase in all of this is verse 2. And I would add this with a huge star on the list of how we respond. It says, and with them were the prophets of God helping them. I think that phrase in your Bible needs to have lights around it, and it needs to scream in our hearts, with them were the prophets of God helping them. Now, I know we're going to get into the the words of Zechariah and the words of Haggai later on, but they're going to be so disconnected that it's going to lose the power of this moment. So allow me to just do one little vision in the book of Zechariah. In chapter 4, Zechariah has this incredible vision. Verse 1, the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man who was wakened out of sleep, and he said, what do you see? Kind of like Nephi, right? What beholdest thou? What do you see? And I said, I looked and behold a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it. 
So I picture him in the wilderness, out in the middle of nowhere, and there's this candlestick trying to keep a flame going. And with all the wind and everything happening, you might say there is no way that candlestick is going to hold on to that flame. There's too many forces against it. You get the idea? This is Zion being built after the apostasy. This is the Jews building a temple after the captivity. It's a lone candlestick in the middle of nowhere, and the idea is there's no way that candlestick's going to survive. And then he sees on the side of the candlestick in verse 3, two olive trees that are pumping oil into the candlestick. And then I just sense this relief that comes over him saying, okay, everything's going to be fine. That candlestick is not going to go out. It has a never-ending supply of oil because there's two olive trees pumping oil into the candlestick. That candlestick is going to be just fine. And so Zechariah asks the angel, verse 4, what are these? What are the two olive trees? And he basically says in verse 6, this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, but my spirit, saying the Lord of hosts. In verse 14, he says, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. I, I wonder if he was referring to Zerubbabel and Joshua. But he was saying, wherever you go, in this restoration, you will have my prophets with you. Prophets in our day are like olive trees pumping oil into the candlestick. And because of that, verse 7, Zechariah cries out to all of the enemies, everyone trying to stop the work from progressing. And I cry out to every effort trying to stop the Latter-day Saints from building Zion. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Russell Nelson? Thou shalt become a plain. This vision gave Zechariah such confidence in the future. There is no obstacle too great. We will succeed. To every obstacle out there, we say, Who art thou, O great mountain, before the prophets, seers, and revelators in our day? You will become a plain. And allow me to just embellish one more time, verse 9. The hands of Joseph Smith have laid the foundation of this latter-day work, and his hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord God, the Lord of hosts, has sent me unto you. This work is going to be completed. The only question is, which side are we going to be on? Are we going to be on the prophet's side? Even though the world is discouraging and mocking and laughing, and even though they have moments where, yes, they stop the work for a while, but who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become a plain. This work was started and will be finished. 
Now, when all of that happens, let me just leave you with this image. Back in Nehemiah chapter 6, what is the result of Nehemiah's determination to succeed? Someday, the enemies of Zion are going to have this moment as well. Let's read Nehemiah 6, 15 and 16. So the wall was finished in the 20 and 5th day of the month of Elul, in 50 and 2 days. And it came to pass that when all our enemies heard thereof, and all the heathens that were about us saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. Someday the world will have that moment where all their efforts to stop us, they will be much cast down in their own eyes and they will perceive that this work was wrought of our God. Be not weary in well-doing because we are doing something very important. And I think that's the great message of Ezra and Nehemiah. So with that, we thank you for your time. We'll see you next week when we cover the book of Esther. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.